Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. first page, Paul's final letters, and we're going to do a brief comparison tonight of the three letters and then look specifically at 1 Timothy and then look particularly at chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, which are wonderful verses that we'll read in preparation for our study of them in just a minute. Here's what Paul writes, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. You see on the first page that the three letters of 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, we refer to them as the pastoral epistles. You'll note that date-wise, 2 Timothy is actually the last letter, probably written around A.D. 67. 1 Timothy, what we will examine tonight, probably earlier, about A.D. 64. Uh, altogether, they are just uh, 13 chapters, 1 Timothy being the longer of the three. And they have a similar kind of theme uh, to them. I tell you what, this... If it's going to just turn this off, this one on. There we go. And we'll try to demon be thrust out or something, but I need one of my charismatic brethren to do that, and they're not here, so we'll just have to be Baptists and just turn it off. But anyway, they all three have a pastoral focus to them, but the last one, though it is pastoral, Second Timothy, also is extremely personal because it has often been Uh, referred to as Paul's swan song because it was the last letter that he wrote, and he knew at the time that he was about to face his execution. They also, all three, center around the gospel, yet in different ways. In 1 Timothy, we need to protect the gospel. In Titus, we need to practice the gospel. Titus is very interested in the fact that godliness uh, and proper doctrine go together. And then in 2 Timothy, of course, a classic text for all of us who have the joy of preaching, 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. So we're to protect, practice, and preach the gospel. If you look on the second page, conduct and doctrine for the church of God, we're going to see that in uh, 1 Timothy... It is a book written by Paul to Timothy, possibly from Macedonia. Uh, It is Paul's manual on the life of the church. Theme, as we just read a moment ago, could be fight the good fight of faith. And the key thought and probably the key verse in the book is found in chapter 3 and in verse 15. Though let me read chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 with you. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that, and here it is, you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of faith. And so knowing how to conduct ourselves in the house of God is a main emphasis that we find, perhaps the main emphasis that we find in First Timothy. Main concerns, false doctrine, the church's people, false teachers, the church's ministry, and the man of God, which he will address repeatedly. Uh, we've just seen in chapter 6, but also you have the classic text, or one of the classic texts, on the qualifications of a pastor in chapter 3, 1 through 7. Also, God's expectation for the deacon in chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. So he's very interested about the ministry, the leadership, and in particular, what it means to be a man of God. Even again, uh, in chapter 2, 1 through 8, he talks about the prayer life of the man of God, but also sandwiches in there God's expectation of the godly woman in chapter 2, verse 9 through 15. So what we're to be doing and what we are to be in the church is very much at the heart of 1 Timothy. If you would then look at page 3, and I provided for you a structural chart there, protecting the church which propagates the truth, and you see a charge in the first chapter, and then addressing various components about the church in chapter 2 going through chapter 6. Early in the book, it's guarding the faith. In the second chapter, it's guarding worship and leadership. Moving into chapter 3 and 4, uh, guarding your life, guarding your doctrine. Moving into chapter 5, guarding relationships. And in chapter 6, guarding your motivations and also guarding your faithfulness. And I also thought it would be helpful for you to see that there are three very short but very beautiful hymns that are sung to God in 117 to the King Eternal, Glory and Honor. In chapter 3, verse 16, to the Son of God who was manifested, justified, seen, preached, believed, and received up into glory. And then finally, in chapter 6, verse 15, to the Sovereign Lord, honor and might. And so a subject purpose statement of 1 Timothy could go this way. Paul, the aged apostle, wrote to Timothy, his young apostolic representative in Ephesus, telling him, one, remain in Ephesus. Two, stay faithful to your ministry. Three, Fight false teaching, and number four, administer and organize the affairs of the church. And those are four main thrusts that we find in First Timothy. Now, let's back up a minute. When it comes to the pastoral epistles, no books of Paul have been more assailed and assaulted than these books. In fact, among more liberal scholarship, you can hardly find anyone that will still affirm the authenticity of the pastorals as actually being the work of Paul. In fact, the only other book that comes close to being assaulted in terms of its authenticity is Second Peter. And so First and Second Timothy and Titus are often uh, denied as being genuinely Pauline by uh, professors of religion and more liberal theologians. And so let's address this issue just like we would if we were at the seminary so that we understand why they do it, but also to demonstrate that there are really good responses to it as well. Note, first of all, the authenticity. Virtually all agree. The authorship of the pastoral stand together. In other words, no one ever says, well... I think this person wrote 1 Timothy, another person wrote 2 Timothy, and a third person wrote Titus. No, all agree. Whoever wrote 1 Timothy, wrote 2 Timothy, wrote Titus. They stand or fall together. And as I mentioned, modern scholarship casts more doubt on the authenticity of these letters than any other of the Pauline epistles. What are their arguments? And I want to be fair. Uh, They just didn't come to this stuff willy-nilly, but those who come to the Bible uh, with an anti-supernatural bias who treat it as just a regular 
human kind of book who have kind of a, a skeptical bent to them anyway, basically have observed some things that are good observations. I just think they draw the wrong conclusions. And so here's what they say. Number one, or letter A, vocabulary and style. There are a large number of words not found in other Pauline books that are present in the pastorals. For example, there are 175 different words that appear in the pastorals that do not appear anywhere else in the New Testament. So there are 175 unique words. Thirdly, significant stylistic differences exist between the pastorals and other Pauline books. In other words, the pastorals don't read like Romans. Uh, They don't read like Galatians. Uh, They don't even read like the Thessalonian letters. They have a different style to them altogether. So there's a vocabulary and style problem, they say. Secondly, there's an ecclesiastical problem. Some believe that the church government of the pastorals is just too advanced For the time of Paul. I mean, we're talking about pastors and deacons. We're talking about a very definite structure to the way the church is to function. And the argument is that did not happen until late in the first or possibly even in the early second century. And of course, by then, uh, Paul is dead. And so Paul could not have addressed uh, issues of that uh, sophistication. They say they then belong to this later time when the organization of the church was more developed and hierarchical. And they will even argue sometimes that uh, Timothy and Titus were actually more like monarchical bishops who were overseeing a number of churches in a particular area, as you have today in Episcopal forms of church government, like the Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church, uh, and the Roman Catholic Church. And they will say, look, they really were not just church planners. They were bishops. They were men who had ecclesiastical authority over a wide geographical area. They were not, for example, simply pastors of local churches or in Titus's example or Titus's uh, particular assignment, in my judgment, a church planter. He sees them and these liberal scholars see him and uh, Timothy in a radically different kind of a way. Then thirdly, they say there's a doctrinal problem. Uh, The pastors do not emphasize characteristic Pauline doctrines like the fatherhood of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, there's great emphasis on passing on the Christian tradition, which certainly must reflect second century Christianity. And then letter D, there is the historical problem, which actually is the major problem for most people that drives them to these other things. All three of the pastorals contain historical allusions to the life of Paul and his associates. For example, 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul has been with Timothy, left him in Ephesus while he went on to Macedonia. Titus 1.5, Paul has left Titus in Crete. 2 Timothy 1.16, Paul refers to Onesiphorus seeking him in Rome. Top of page 5, 2 Timothy 1.8 and 16, Paul is a prisoner. And now he is uh, anticipating his execution. And the argument is simply this. These events cannot be located within the book of Acts. Furthermore, we really can't fit them into the other Pauline literature like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. And so the conclusion then is... This must have happened later after the time of Paul. So their conclusion. Some scholars argue that the pastels were written after the time of Paul by a fiction writer who uses Paul's name to strengthen the authenticity of these letters. At our school, we give our students the million-dollar word. They are pseudepigraphical writings. 
Pseudo means false. Graphe means to write. So a pseudepigraphical writing is a false writing. It is a writing under the name of a person who actually is not the author. Now, in a somewhat similar vein, uh, others suggest that these books are the work of a Pauline admirer. And so, for example, there are some who have said that it was written by Luke. Others have said that perhaps it was Timothy. In fact, I know one scholar who has argued that Luke is not only the author of Luke-Acts, but he's also the author of Hebrews. And he also argues, based upon stylistic similarities, that Luke is also the author of the pastorals. Now, I will show you later that I think you can make a good argument that Luke perhaps served as the secretary or the amanuensis of the pastorals, and that then would explain why, if he's the author of Hebrews. There's very significant uh, uh, vocabulary and stylistic commonality between Luke Acts, Hebrews, and the pastorals. That's a fact. That, that is not deniable. Now, how you explain that may be in different ways, but that is an accurate observation. So that, for example, my good friend David Allen, uh, who is the dean at Southwestern Seminary, who wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on the authorship of Hebrews, argues very strongly that Luke is the author of Luke, Acts, and Hebrews. And furthermore, he did a very detailed uh, study of the similarities between Hebrews and the pastorals, Luke, Acts, and the pastorals. And he thinks that there's a good reason for believing that indeed uh, Luke was the amanuensis, the secretary of the pastorals. And by the way, in 2 Timothy 4, as Paul is in the Mamertine dungeon awaiting execution, what does he say? Only Luke is with me. So, just an interesting thing for us to observe as we're walking through this. All right? How might we then respond and defend uh, Pauline authorship when it comes to the pastors? Well, here's the arguments and then we'll respond. Church tradition. This ought to have a star by it. The church was unanimous in its affirmation of the authenticity of the pastoral epistles until the modern era. In other words, until the 1800s, the rise of the Enlightenment, rationalism, anti-supernaturalism, no one ever denied or questioned the pastorals are the work of Paul. In other words, those closest to the time of writing were unanimous in affirming Paul as the author of the pastorals. What about vocabulary and style? Well, the differences in subject matter, purpose, and destination may account for many of these. For example, Paul is writing to an individual in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. The only other time he does that is with Philemon. Furthermore, he is writing in Titus to someone who is church planting in a very difficult situation. Furthermore, both Titus and 1 and 2 Timothy reflect the same kind of false teaching that would then dictate a similar vocabulary when you're dealing with a similar kind of problem. Furthermore, stylistic arguments against Paul's authorship tend to be very subjective. Uh, there are differences within the other Pauline letters that are just as extensive as those between the epistles and the pastorals. So, for again... First and second Thessalonians are not at all like Romans. And Galatians is nothing like second Corinthians or first Corinthians. They're very, very different. And yet no one questions Romans, 
First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, First Thessalonians. So why would you question these when there's similar phenomenon here? What about the ecclesiastical problem? Well, the fact that Paul appointed elders at the very outset of his missionary work is strong evidence of his interest in orderly church government. I'll go all the way back to Acts 14. We're in the first missionary journey. We're before A.D. 50. And Paul is appointing elders throughout the places where he is ministering. Furthermore, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Philippians makes reference to elders and deacons. So Paul was interested in church government there as well. Secondly, the instructions regarding bishops in 1 Timothy and Titus do not reflect the monarchical government that began to develop in the second century. This is simply a forced and unnecessary reading. Go to the top of page six, the doctoral problem. The alleged absence of typical Pauline themes is simply overstated. For example, the shortage of references to the Holy Spirit found in 1 Timothy 4, 1, 2 Timothy 1, 14, and Titus 3, 5 is only a surface problem. Colossians, as well as 2 Thessalonians, only mentions the Spirit once. So this is a very inadequate criterion for authenticity. Secondly, the emphasis on Christian tradition does not require a second century date. You find emphasis on tradition in 1 Corinthians 11, 2. You find it in 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 2, 6, Colossians 1, 15. If citing a hymn or traditional material was to Paul's advantage, he would do it. And he did it as early as writing of 1 Corinthians and then again as late as the pastorals as well. But now the big problem, the historical one. There are many aspects of Paul's life. That Acts does not record. Just go look at 2 Corinthians 11, for example. Consequently, it should not be surprising that Acts does not record a second Pauline imprisonment in Rome. If Acts was written in the early 60s, A.D. 61 to 63, as is the best view, it could have been written before the historical references described in the pastorals had even happened. And, and this is very important. If Paul was martyred at the end of his imprisonment recorded in Acts 28, it is difficult, I think impossible, to imagine that Luke would have concluded the book without even mentioning this event. Thus, the ending of Acts is compatible with the suggestion that Paul had a subsequent release, a subsequent mission journey, a second imprisonment, all of which is not recorded in Luke's work of Acts. Thirdly, Paul's expectation is that he will be released, is made clear in Philippians 1.19 and 25, also 2.24. And the fact that he expects to be released favors the hypothesis of two separate Roman imprisonments. One at the book of Acts, when he then writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Another one several years later, when he will write Second Timothy. So, historical reconstruction. Since the historical allusions in the pastorals do not fit into the narrative of Acts, we acknowledge that, we grant that. It can be argued that Paul was released after his two years' imprisonment in Rome. He spent a period of time in the eastern Mediterranean and Macedonia, Crete, Troas, and Nicopolis. So that we might argue this way. First Timothy is written from Macedonia to Timothy at Ephesus. Secondly, Titus is written as Paul is moving toward Nicopolis. He has previously left Titus in Crete. 
top of page 7. Second Timothy then shows that Paul is once again imprisoned in Rome and that now he's anticipating his death, which is not very far away. So earlier, 64, he writes Timothy from Macedonia. Later, as he's moving toward Nicopolis, he writes Titus who is on Crete. And then finally, back in prison a second time, he will write Second Timothy as he anticipates that his martyrdom is shortly around the corner. All right. So there's a big kind of broad overview of the pastorals and why it is that I think we still have very good reason for affirming that Paul was indeed the author. Now, what about First Timothy in particular? Well, again, look at page eight with me. And I think you'll find a couple of facts here interesting. These three letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, were not actually called pastorals until the 18th century, when they were given this title in 1703 and then later in 1726. Furthermore, the epistles are not precisely pastorals, but more like church administrative handbooks. Furthermore, in the strictest sense, Timothy and Titus were not serving as pastors, but more like official missionary delegates of Paul who were assisting churches in their planting, in their policies, in their polity, and in their practice. And although the letters are written to individuals, it is very clear that they are not only personal but also official in character. They were clearly intended to be read by a wider audience. And First Timothy is crystal clear. I mean, he lays out the characteristics of an elder and deacons in chapter 3. And then in chapter 5, he tells the church how to discipline an elder that has gotten out of line. Well, clearly that was meant more than just for Timothy. It was meant for the entire congregation of Ephesus. And I think Titus, likewise, was meant for the uh, entire congregation of churches at Crete. The one that is most personal is Second Timothy. Because there he is writing to his young son as he anticipates again uh, his martyrdom. Now, the ministry for Paul following his first Roman letter. Again, this is somewhat a recap, so I'm going to hit it very quickly. There is evidence for Paul's release Important evidence is Acts 28.30. Furthermore, he anticipated his release, as we saw a moment ago. This is a new point, though. Paul had a great desire to minister in Spain. In fact, in Romans 15.22-24 and 28, he reveals his plans to preach in Spain. And there is evidence from the church fathers that he actually had the opportunity to do this. For example, Clement, don't miss the next two words, of Rome, writing about A.D. 95, says this, and I quote, After preaching both in the East and West, he, that is Paul, gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and, now mark this, and come to the extreme limit of the West and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. Now look at page 9 and note my commentary. Clement, first of all, wrote around A.D. 95, only 30 years after the pastorals. Furthermore, he wrote his letter from Rome. Now, Clement would hardly consider himself to be at the extreme western portion of the Roman Empire when he was in Rome. In fact, the Romans considered Rome to be the proud center of the empire, and it was Spain that was seen as the western terminus of the empire. Furthermore... An early church document called the Muratorian Canon, in commenting on Luke's writings, affirmed that Luke, quote, omits the journey of St. Paul to Spain. 
So if you take the fact that he was released at the end of Acts, that he has a fourth missionary journey, that he in that fourth missionary journey makes his way to Spain, eventually is rearrested, goes back to Rome, and is put to death, and you take First and Second Timothy and Titus and try to reconstruct it, what is it that you might come up with? Well, here's a, not hard and fast, but a possible or probable reconstruction. First Timothy 1, 3. Paul leaves, Paul is released from Rome. He departs from Macedonia with instructions for Timothy's work at Ephesus. First Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul hopes to come to Ephesus soon and he probably though will be delayed. Titus 1, 5. He refers here that he somehow worked in a quick trip down to Crete. Titus 3.12, he intends to go to Nicopolis, which is probably located in the province of Achaia, modern-day Greece. 2 Timothy 4.13-20, he tells us he recently visited Troas, Miletus, and probably Corinth. 2 Timothy 1.16-17-2.9, he wrote 2 Timothy, he is now imprisoned again in Rome. So here is the suggested sequence of events in a 1-2-3 kind of summary. After his release from his first Roman imprisonment, Paul returned to the east, at least as far as Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Secondly, top of page 10, while or adding on, while he's in the east, he may have written 1 Timothy and Titus. This means then he would have visited Crete, Ephesus, Colossae, and Macedonia. Paul later would have returned to Ephesus, and possibly Titus was written from here. Then Paul may have made his trip west and ministered to Spain. On his way west, he could have spent the winter at Nicopolis, as he said that he would. Paul then would have returned to the east before his final imprisonment. Perhaps he was again able to visit Miletus, Troas, and Corinth. But somewhere in there, he is arrested. He is taken back to Rome. And there he will write Second Timothy from the Mamertine dungeon right before his execution. So now we're back to 1 Timothy. Why did he write 1 Timothy? Well, Paul wrote 1 Timothy because of a possible delay in his arrival at Ephesus, 3.14. Certain matters needed to be addressed, such as false doctrine, leadership, administrative policies and practices. Hence, he may have penned the letter around A.D. 64 from Macedonia. Well, what was the heresy that was causing trouble both in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Well, evidently, it was a system taught by Judaizers who were also influenced by pagan philosophical ideas. These extra-biblical ideas seem to have been a form of incipient Gnosticism. Now, you say, well, that's a mouthful, Danny. Judaizers just think work salvation. Judaizers believe that you need a Jesus plus the law plan to be saved. Furthermore, because these Judaizers were susceptible to mysticism, because Judaizers in the Mediterranean world sometimes would buy into various elements of Greek philosophy and speculation, they began to merge and synthesize. They had a syncretistic form of Judaism that also had a dose of the mystery religions, a flavor of Gnosticism, speculation, and so on, and they would wrap all of that into a Jewish kind of way of doing religion. And so Paul in 1.7 says that they need to confront these teachers of the law 
and their uh, Jewish myths that go beyond the Scripture. He also clearly is addressing aspects or elements of philosophical paganism. Uh, salvation is by knowledge. The body should be either tortured or released to live in a licentious kind of a way. In chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 3, and chapter 6, verse 20. So all of that is a amalgamation of the false teaching that he is confronting in 1 Timothy and also in Titus. But then what about the recipient himself? Well, Timothy was a much younger colleague of Paul's who had become his frequent traveling companion and a close friend. In fact, it's very interesting. In chapter 4 and verse 12, he writes to Timothy, Let no one despise your youth. But you be an example to the believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. Well, you say, well, then he must have been a teenager. No. The way the word is used in the first century implies that he probably was a man at least under 40. Most people believe, and I think rightly so, that probably now, around A.D. 64, 65, Paul is himself in his 60s. Timothy most likely now is in his mid-30s. Perhaps his latter 30s, but most likely still a man under the age of 40. Furthermore, if you work your way through the book, it becomes kind of clear. And I said this playfully in chapel a couple of weeks ago. Titus was tough. Timothy was timid. In fact, Timothy, I think, was easily intimidated. I think Timothy was prone to worry about things. In fact, he says over in chapter 5, look. Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake and your many infirmities. In other words, the church at Ephesus, though it was a good church, was probably taking advantage of the young fellow. They were picking at him, questioning him. These false teachers came in and they, like most false teachers, had very powerful personalities and they seemed to be cocksure of everything. And Timothy, I think at one time, maybe even was thinking of bailing out. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You stay in Ephesus. You stir up the gift that was prophesied is in you. Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. But son, bow up, stand up and play the man. And don't be intimidated by these people that are giving you a hard time. And so, in part, maybe one of their accusations was, well, he's just a young whippersnapper. Uh, He's just, you know, green uh, and wet behind the ears. And so he says in chapter 4, don't let them despise your youth. Well, Paul, how do I stand up to people who do that? He says, the character of your life will do it. You make sure that you are an example. In word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. And if you do that, you'll shut the mouths of those who are questioning your authority and your right to be pastor and leader of this church. But, Bob of the page 10, moving to 11, Timothy was from Lystra. He probably met Paul during his first missionary journey. It is likely that Timothy, his mother, and his grandmother became converts at this time. And most likely, Timothy's mother was a Hebrew And Timothy's father was probably a Gentile, a Greek, which is also why later, for the sake of the gospel, Paul will have Timothy circumcised, but with Titus, no way. It is not going to happen. Why? Because you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a believer. 
And anyone that says you've got to add the mosaic rituals and the extra uh, biblical rituals that have been imposed by the false teachers is simply propagating a false gospel. So, number two, and we'll look at our quick text this evening during Paul's missionary journeys. He entrusted Timothy with assignments to the churches at Thessalonica. Went fairly well. Corinth, a big bust. Philippi, probably pretty well there also. Furthermore, interestingly, he assisted in six of Paul's letters. First and second Thessalonians, second Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. Not that he was a co-author, but that probably he likewise served as an amanuensis during the writing of those particular letters. And Timothy was a highly trusted associate of Paul. In fact, both of Timothy and Titus. He refers to them as his son in the faith, which indicates, I think, that Paul had led both Timothy and Titus to faith in Christ. So with that then as a quick introduction, look on page 12 and in your Bible, and we'll walk through these wonderful verses that talk about the life of the man of God. Four things that Paul drives home for all of us. I use the word man here generically. All of us in terms of how it is that we can make progress in the faith as we grow in Christ's likeness and in sanctification. Number one. Know what to flee from. And I know you're not supposed to end sentences with prepositions, but actually the grammars of the modern era have changed. And they actually say that in familiar colloquial English, if you want to end in a preposition, you can. And so I am uh, going to do that from on for two. So know what to flee from. Verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee These things. Well, flee what things? Well, flee the things he has just talked about in chapter 6, verse 3 through verse 10. And if you go back and survey those verses, four things will jump out at you. First of all, run from pride. Verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to healthy words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, here it is, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. So the first thing he says is, flee, run from pride. Secondly, flee or run from anger, because he also says in verse 4 and verse 5, from these arguments over words come envy, Strife, reviling, which is a, a word which means to blaspheme, evil suspicions, uh, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdrawal yourselves. And so there he speaks of the fact that we need to run from anger, but related to the last part of verse 5 and developed more fully in verses 6 through 8, we need to run from ambition. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Job says in Job one twenty one, naked I came in, and naked I'm going out. You brought nothing in, and you're taking nothing with you. I don't care how much you have this side of heaven. And so he's arguing there that you be content. 
You be at peace with whatever God gives you. In fact, verse 8. Look. Having food and clothing. With these we shall, the emphasis is we should be content. If you've got something to eat and something to wear, you are a wealthy, wealthy man. By the way, that was certainly true in the ancient world. And if you think about it, when you consider what some of our brothers and sisters in uh, Africa are going through today, well, they would be thrilled just to have something to give to their children, much less themselves. And a coat on their back, while well, they would consider themselves wealthy beyond measure. And Paul's point is simply this, you just need to be content with whatever it is that God has given you. So you run from pride, anger, ambition, but you also run from greed in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and, and I'll emphasize some very picturesque words here. Let me start again. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, a bear trap. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown, which sink men in destruction and perdition. So you want to be caught in a trap? You want to drown? Then let money become your master. But verse 9, or excuse me, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, you'll notice that the word kinds is in italics. So it's not in the original text, but I am convinced it is the thrust of the text. I don't believe that Paul was saying the love of money is the root of all evil. I don't think he meant that. I think the context clearly indicates that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith, which means what? At one time they walked in the faith, but because money became their master, they moved away from the faith. I know some people in my short time on this earth, in my 28 years in ministry, that started out right, straight as an arrow, but because of financial, material allurement, their theology changed, their ministry changed, their philosophy of ministry changed, their message changed, and in my judgment, straying from the truth, the faith in their greediness, they pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so the man of God will know what to flee from. He will run from pride, anger, ambition, and greed. Now, very quickly, secondly, he will know what to focus on. And Paul says here, righteousness and godliness, faith and love, patience and gentleness. I actually do think they fit in three couplets. And so he says there, fight, uh, or verse 11, but flee from these things and in contrast pursue righteousness, which I think complements godliness, faith, which complements love, and patience, which complements gentleness. So here are the things we focus on. We, we run from pride, anger, ambition, and greed. But we run toward righteousness and godliness, faith and love, patience and gentleness. So we know what we should focus on. But then thirdly, started to jump ahead of it a little bit a moment ago, know what to fight for. First of all, as you fight, find strength in your calling. And secondly, find strength in your confession. It's very interesting how he will tie this in to the confession of Jesus before Pilate as well. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Well, how do I do that? Well, number one. Lay hold on eternal life. Now you say, wait a minute. I thought eternal life is a gift. It is. But sometimes you can have a gift that you don't have in your possession. 
Sometimes you have a gift that you neglect. Sometimes you have a gift that you forget. And his point is not that you lay hold of it in the sense that you've got to go get it. Lay hold on it in the sense you've already got it. And if you lay hold of eternal life, knowing that no matter what you do, you are safe and secure in the hand of God, you can fight the good fight of faith with what I call a sanctified, reckless abandonment. So you lay hold on eternal life, in which you were also called and have confessed that good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, you find strength in your faith. When you will stand up and profess Christ in front of other people. It is the timid Christian that never shares his faith. That doesn't do a very good job of fighting for the faith. If you on a regular basis are not ashamed to say a good word about Jesus. There's something about your confession that brings strength and stability to your faith. And he says, look, I simply urge you then in the sight of God who gives life to all things, including, I would suspect, your confession, who before Christ Jesus as well, who also witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, if he stood before the one who would crucify him, you certainly can stand before others who won't crucify you and confess your good confession. Then finally, we also need to know what to be faithful to. And note in verse 13 through 16, I urge you then the sight of God, who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment. What commandment? That you indeed will confess the good confession of faith. That's the commandment here. He has commanded you and me. You confess the good confession of faith. And you do so how? Without spot, blameless. Boy, did that word show up repeatedly in Paul's writings. Blameless. Until our Lord Jesus Christ and his appearing. Why? Because if you don't have a blameless life, if you don't have a life of integrity, your confession will be absolutely worthless. Your words must be backed up by a life that brings integrity to those words. And he says, you do so how long? Until Jesus comes back. Well, when's he coming back? When he wants to. He will come back and be manifest in his own time. You don't set the date. You don't set the date. I don't set the date. Tim LaHaye doesn't set the date. Hal Lindsey doesn't set the date. No cultist sets the date. He comes back in his own time. So what do we need to be doing between now and then? Well, you just need to be honoring him, praising him, loving him, and enjoying him. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, let me... Unwrap a mystery here. Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be glory and everlasting power. Amen. You say, wait a minute, time out. They saw him on earth. Yes. But no one has seen him now in his unapproachable light. Oh, John in the Revelation came close. Chapter 1, verse 9 through 20, and what happens? John was knocked to the ground as if dead. You see, you and I right now in our sinfulness, yes, we're saved. We're on our way to glory, but we're not there yet. And this side of heaven, if we were to see the absolute, pristine, pure, glorified Christ, 
we would be burned up and consumed in a millisecond. But one of these days, as 1 John 3 says, we will see him as he is. And when we do, it also says there, we'll be like him. And when we are glorified and we can dwell in this unapproachable light, then we will be able to see him and see him as he is. For then we will be like him. But this side of glory, it's not happening. This side of glory, you better be glad it's not happening. But on the other side, yes, we'll see him and we will enjoy him forever and ever. Hence, he can say to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So be it. And what a great word for us to end our study this evening. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you do indeed inform us as to what the man of God, the woman of God will be like knowing what we need to run from, focus on, fight for, and be faithful to. And may we, when everything is said and done, be found faithful to that one who is indeed in that unapproachable light, the glorified, risen Christ, even our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.